صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Rob, how you doing? Mate, I'm very well, Nasser, and good morning, Kim. Good morning to both of you. How are you? And we're very excited to have you on for our listeners today. That uh, Kim is a uh, is an Aboriginal lady from Melbourne and is doing a PhD in Palestine. And so today we're blessed to have you on with the amount of information that you can give us. Thanks, Rob. Just one clarification. I'm actually originally from Queensland, so I'm a Murray. Um, I'm not actually from Melbourne, but uh, been down here quite a while now. Well, we've adopted Thanks you, Kim. For the <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Kim, can you tell us on your journey to Palestine? How did you, as an Indigenous woman, find Palestine? I became politically active in the sort of mid '90s uh, um, around Aboriginal issues, particularly um, you know when uh, John Howard was elected, and around uh, the the struggle at that time uh, because of the, the you know the concerted pushback by Howard and the Liberal government into on Aboriginal rights and uh, issues. Uh, so that's where I first started, you know, becoming uh, active uh, in a real sense, uh, you know, participating in uh, protests and activities and uh, lots of things like that. And through the course of that, I became much more aware of the Palestine situation. Um, I mean, I had already, you know, had a, a fairly reasonable uh, knowledge that it was going on, but I hadn't been, you know, politically active or drawn to it. It became quite clear to me as I became more politically active around Indigenous issues and Aboriginal issues that obviously that, you know, Australia is not the only settler colonial uh, uh, state or country in the world. Um, so it's really important, obviously, to build solidarity and to uh, see the links between Indigenous struggles throughout yeah. the world. And obviously, Palestine Palestine is one of those places as well that is also a settler colonial country. And so for me, uh, I started to educate myself more on it and to understand the situation. Um, and particularly then um, when the, uh, the Second Intifada uh, broke out, um, you know, I, I uh, felt very strongly about what was happening. Um, so I became, uh, you know, I was working with a, an Indigenous student rights group and uh, we started to do some Palestine solidarity work with um, local uh, uh, Palestinian youth groups uh, uh, in Sydney and Canberra. Uh, so that, that sort of started to extend my knowledge. And then uh, in, I can't remember what year it was, maybe two early 2000s anyway, um, uh, a friend of mine who had been very active in the uh, South African anti-apartheid struggle was contacted by uh, a South African anti-apartheid activist who was working in Palestine uh, with a group called the International Women's Peace Service. Um, and they were looking for Aboriginal uh, Indigenous women to, and Indigenous women around the world and working class women to uh, join uh, the project in Palestine. So what a my wonderful friend, project. 
Yes, it is. It is a wonderful project. It's still there and I really encourage people to have a look at it and find out more about it. You can check them out. So it's the International Women's Peace Service. Um, and uh, they originally started uh, uh, in the second, uh, during the second intervada um, uh, because they wanted to be able to help local communities uh, in Palestine and they work very closely with the local communities on the ground in the occupied West Bank. I was told about this opportunity and asked if I would be interested in going. Uh, and so I had to think about it for a couple of days. And then, because I hadn't really ever considered going to Palestine before this. And, it's not on the um, list, is it, normally? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was so, you know, there was a lot of things I wanted to do, but yeah, it wasn't the first thing that had come to my mind. No. And so, so I, after thinking about it for a couple of days, I, just, I decided, yes, I would do it because I was, I, I just happened to actually be in the, in between changing jobs. I, I, I'd been working and a contract had finished. I hadn't started a new contract. So I thought, oh, well, okay, you know, let's, uh, I've been thinking to go to Latin America or somewhere else. So I thought, well, okay, let's let's go to Palestine and you know do some active, Palestine, uh, you know, uh, solidarity on the ground. So five weeks after I decided that I was going, I was in Palestine. So well done. Well it done. happened very Quirky. quickly. <laughs> yeah. So it was very quickly, and so I was there for about the first time. I was there for about four months, uh, and so it was a real, you know, even though I felt like. I had a fairly good understanding of the situation and the occupation before going in there uh, because, you know, as I said, I tried to educate myself over the previous years about the situation there. Um, it's still, a, you know, a shock to see it in real life. I, I experienced the same thing. I was pretty familiar with it and went over mm -hmm. there and uh, it, nothing can prepare you for when exactly. you actually see it. Exactly. That's right. It's and you know I say to people usually I try to I say you know I don't want to sound like I'm being cheesy or not, but it was. It was a profound experience. You know, yeah. really becomes indelible. It becomes a, an indelible experience. Yeah. And um, what year was that first visit, Kim? Uh, that was in 2004. The first time I went, yep. and um, I was there for about three or four months working with IWPS. And it was like, like I said, you, you know the basics of it, but you go and you just see the. I don't want to minimise the brutality of the occupation, but also the ridiculousness of the occupation, you know. And you would, I'd ask my colleagues, I was working actually, two of the key women on my team were actually uh, Jewish-American women uh, who had been involved in Palestine Solidarity for a, a long time. And um, one of them had actually been working uh, in the West, occupied West Bank for uh, about a year before I got there. And, um, you know, and I'd say to them, you know, why, why is the Israeli military doing this? Or why are they doing this? And their response would be, because they can. Yeah. And it was like, really, that's the answer? And I realised later on that it's exactly the answer. Yeah, they want to and they can. And no, no one can hold them to account. So. Exactly. And so even though, you know, obviously there's, we know that there's lots of, political and ideological reasons behind all of this sort of stuff. But on the practice, when you see it on the ground, it's very much like um, this. It's an, uh, it's an attempt at attrition, to push Palestinians mm. out through attrition, through just uh, as one of my other colleagues uh, 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 coined it, you know, the, uh, the everyday sorrow of occupation, oh. um, which I thought was a very good way to yeah, describe very it. Is, yeah. 
And so and, 04, and then when was the next time you went? Uh, so then I, 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 when I came back, I continued to work with IWPS as, yep. as, um, uh, as, a, a, as a sort of, uh, basically the whole group is, we don't have an office or anything other than in the occupied territories, um, we, you know, where we live uh, when we're there. Everything else is organised, you know, basically through the uh, internet and online and things like that. So I continued to work with the group, but then I went back again in 2007 uh, and I stayed for a year this time. So I wow. spent uh, half my time in, uh, in working with IWPS and the other half I was working with um, a Palestinian NGO in Ramallah. Um, uh, so uh, I did that. And so that was, a, again, you know, a very profound experience because you get to see it's very different living in Ramallah compared to living in a small village in the middle of the West Bank. And the, the, the village that we were living in the West Bank is not far from our Ariel colony, the, the colony of Ariel, uh, which is, is probably the biggest, you know, colony in the West Bank. Um, uh, so, so working there uh, and, you know, we just didn't stay in that, that area is known as Selfit. Uh, we travel all across the occupied West Bank. So having that experience working on the ground and then also working in Ramallah was quite different in many ways. So uh, I did that. And then for the next few years after that, I'd gone, I went back every year or two for a couple of months, whenever time permitted. Um, but I think it's, it's been, it's probably been, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to go back now for maybe uh, five years or so, but obviously I still follow um, things fairly closely and uh, I'm very interested in it. So for me, I suppose what it comes down to is, you know, the similarities between the Aboriginal and Indigenous struggle here in Australia and the, and the, the, the struggle in Palestine, you know, both, are, uh, both of us, are, 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 there is a settler, both Israel and Australia, settler colonial countries, uh, both, our, uh, both our people have been violently dispossessed, there has been ethnic cleansing of both of our people, um, you know, mass murder, all of these things that go on. So there is so many similarities, at least in my mind, um, between the Aboriginal struggle in Australia and the struggle in Palestine. So to me, it's very important to uh, to build those links between our communities and to to see that our struggle really is a struggle that is un, is one that we carry out together. I suppose is the best way to put it. So we should tell our listeners that if they've got want some more information on the International Women's Peace Service, the website is iwps.info. iwps.info. They can find out some more there. Now it's interesting that you say that, Kim, because uh, as we know, the Zionists have been very very keen. A, to switch that narrative that, in fact, they're Indigenous, that Benjamin Netanyahu is Indigenous to Palestine. And mm. the Zionist network here in Australia has been very, very proactive in endeavouring to co-opt the Aboriginal community and have been had some success. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes, that's very true. I mean, you have here in Australia, I mean, we have the same thing. You know, we have people like Pauline Hanson who claims she's Indigenous, <laughs> you know. It's a, it's the same right-wing, horrible right-wing narrative that is under under underpinned by uh, racism, that's underpinned by um, a, a complete disregard for the Indigenous experience, whether it be in Palestine or in Australia. Um, and so, and I think it is really important that, you know, that, that we do try to make those links between both the struggles and that we try to build 
links between our communities uh, in Australia and obviously Indigenous communities and the Palestinian community around the world. And yes, um, I think there has been a certain degree of success by the Zionist movement here in Australia. But, you know, I also know many Aboriginal activists uh, who are very, uh, very uh, committed to the Palestinian struggle and yeah. see it as something that they need to be standing in solidarity there's, there's, with. There's so, a few, yeah, there's a few Uncle Toms at the top that have sold out. Well, so, yeah, I mean, it, it can be definitely uh, things that happen like that. And uh, and I think the main thing for us is to actually look at where we can build links and educate uh, our community uh, on this sort of thing and why, you know, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders should be standing in solidarity with Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is a, a thing that within our communities, I think that we have to focus on because, you know, often when there's uh, people who have an opposite position, we, you know, try to change their mind is never going to work. Yeah. So to me, the, the, the issue is like, how do we reach out and talk to those in our community who may not really uh, know all the details, may only have a, you know, a, a, a limited understanding of what's going on. As I said, you know, originally I, I had a very limited understanding of, the, the Palestinian struggle and uh, and it was only through you know making a conscious effort to understand it further that you know that I'm where I am now sort of mm. thing yeah so um, you're just completing your PhD that's correct yes what did you learn oh I learned a lot so yeah just to give an idea of uh, to explain what my PhD is it is on Palestine um, so basically I'm looking at settler colonialism and political violence in Palestine during the period between uh, uh, 1917 and 1939 um, so the oh. idea yeah so the idea was to look at uh, often a lot of studies, uh, academic studies uh, or books, whatever you would like to think of, um, have usually felt they focus on one side or the other. They either focus on Palestine or Palestinians or they focus on Zionists. So my, my thesis is more to look at, try to do a comparative study of it as, uh, as violence was escalating through that period. Um, and so uh, for me, uh, it was born out of, this this PhD was born out of my time in Palestine uh, because uh, I was, I can't remember which year, it might have been 2007, I can't remember what year it was, uh, I was there and at the time there was, um, you know, it, it, as you both would know, uh, settler violence escalates and de-escalates at different times and there'll be patches where Settler violence still happens, but and 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 military violence still happens, but then there will be periods where it escalates much higher uh, to that. And I was there at one part when um, there was uh, a, a concerted campaign by the more very ex the the Zionist right wing uh, in living in the settlements uh, to attack Palestinian villages. And there oh, was lots right, of, yeah. yeah, there was a lot of crops being burnt. There were, uh, you know, regular invasions of videos by settlers. And, of course, the Israeli military would just stand by and let them do whatever they wanted. Um, there was even, you know, at one stage, there was one particular attack where even Netanyahu, I think it was Netanyahu, even or one, of them, one of the leaders of Israel, you know, described it as a pogrom. But then, of course, they, they, they actually then pulled back from saying that. Um, so that's where... Sorry, what was that, Robert? 
and do nothing about it. And do nothing about it, yeah. So that was the basis of uh, what inspired me to, you know, start looking at this. So I wanted to look at historically where did, you know, because it's often painted, oh, that, you know, uh, settler violence and things like that. It's just when there were those extreme cases, uh, not extreme cases, but those more obvious cases of settler violence, oh, you know, they're just an aberration. They're, it's not really what's happened. So I wanted to look at the where did this emerge from? Was this correct? Was this the important thing? So I sort of went right back to the start. Uh, and so what's been interesting for me about this study has been, it, it's given me a, a better understanding of both sides, you know, both the Palestinian side and the Zionist side. On the Zionist side, uh, I now have a better understanding of where a lot of the arguments that, you know, hardcore Zionists will put forward to justify um, occupation and apartheid and things like that. And to be honest, the arguments that we're hearing today are the same arguments that were being made 120 years ago. We were having this conversation before, weren't we? With, yeah. with NASA saying how the, you had the same conversations every 10 years or every five years. Yes. And obviously it's been happening over there, correct? That's, that's the right, yeah. And so, you know, I, when I was doing my research and I, would, I was reading, you know, uh, what uh, speeches and things that Ben-Gurion would have given to, you know, uh, leaderships of the, of the yeshiv, the, the, the Zionist yeshiv, uh, and, and, you know, other speeches by people like uh, Haim Wiseman and things like that, uh, and also Jabotinsky. Um, so, you know, you read these and you go, ah, right. So this is the origin of this mythology uh, hmm. that has been developed uh, in, in relation to that. And the other thing that's very noticeable from obviously the Zionist side too as well is that, you know, there is a realisation by uh, the Zionist leaders, particularly people like Ben-Gurion and others, that they know that this is a conflict Overland, that they know that this is not about, you know, uh, as often is argued that it's a it's a conflict of religion, it's a conflict of um, of just so complex that you can't understand it. No, they understand fundamentally that this is a, a settler colonial conflict about land, about who is going to get control of this land. Uh, and, you know, there's a very, there's a very um, uh, important, there's a, an exchange at one part between Haim Wiseman and um, Haim Azarov, uh, who was assassinated um, uh, in the, in the, in the mid, when was the assassin? Early thirties, I think it was actually not by Palestinians, but by a, 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 a Jewish radical group. Um, uh, and, and, and Azarov was the um, the political sort of director officer of the uh, Jewish Jewish agency in Palestine. And and he's right. He writes this letter where he makes an assessment about where what stage of the struggle they're up to. And they, and he says, you know, at the moment we've built enough demographics that we're sort of at this stage that we've got more of a grip in Palestine, but it's not enough yet to block the Palestinian struggle. Uh, and we have to look at how do we do this? And of course, one of the key things for the Zionists was the demographic issue, which was, you know, getting as much um, Zionist settlers to come in and settle and things yeah. like that. So you have that sort of issue that's happening on the Palestinian side. What's interesting about it is obviously that clearly uh, it is a, uh, as with most settler colonial struggles, it is a reactive struggle um, that you have a, a settler colonial power coming in. That's uh, in, and often you have Zionists will tell you that, oh, it's this is not a settler colonial thing because you know the 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 
the Zionist population that came and, and, and settled there were from all different places. They weren't from one metropole. And that's true. It, it is slightly different from most other settler colonial places, but it still has the me basic mechanics of it, uh, of, of what settler colonialism is, which is the erasure, not the erasure, but the, um, the, the, the quest for control of territory. Uh, the ethnic cleansing or removal of the um, uh, population, or in the words that um, uh, Patrick Wolfe would use, the elimination uh, of, of the Indigenous po population. And, in, and when he talks about uh, elimination, what he means is it could be through massacres, genocide, it could be through assimilation. Uh, it, there's a whole variety of different ways. It doesn't just mean one thing. The Palestinian struggle uh, in those early days was very much reactive in the sense of hoping that Britain would, you know, help, help, help and be understanding. Uh, but of course, Britain had its own ideas because it had an imperialist agenda. Uh, and it's only as, you know, settler colonialism picks up and more Zionist population uh, encroaches onto Palestinian land. Uh, you see this, uh, you know, Palestinians who've worked land for ages being pushed off land uh, into shanty towns and things like that, that then you start to see this movement more towards a more combination of struggle that encompasses violence and nonviolence. And most of the most of the time between 1917 and 1939, the Palestinian struggle was nonviolent. And even in the period of 1936 to 1939, which is the Great Revolt, uh, the, it's a, it's a, the largest anti-colonial revolt uh, at that time uh, in history. At this time, it started off initially as a non-violent civil disobedience, as a strike, as people protesting, hold, withholding taxes, uh, doing all these things. And the reason it starts to escalate into uh, guerrilla warfare predominantly is because of the way of the, the response of the British government, who actively try to repress the non-violent struggle by doing everything from, you know, blowing up whole villages, dropping bombs from aeroplanes on villages, uh, mass arrests, whole things like that. And this pushes it into a more violent thing. Very interesting for me about the 1936 revolt was the role played by the grassroots. Uh, you know, at the time, if you read a lot of right-wing or even Zionist history books, they will always blame the Husseinis for, for what happened. Mm -hmm. But it was very much driven by on the ground, grassroots, uh, people organising through committees uh, throughout Palestine, uh, organising ordinary workers and ordinary peasants uh, and being part of that. And so to me, that was really impressive and very uh, interesting to learn about. Because, you know, obviously the, the Zionist playbook is, you know, Husseini, Hajj Husseini went to Germany and according to Netanyahu, he told Hitler about the final solution, mm. that that's in fact the biggest challenge to the Palestinians not having a state today is our intransience and never accepting that the Jews had a right to, to a state. Yeah, and I mean, this is all, you know, a distortion of, of actual history and what's going on. And the 30, as I said, the 36 to 39 revolt in particular is, is very interesting when you're looking at, uh, there's been actually papers written on the similarities between 36 and 39 revolt and the and the and the first Palestinian intifada mm -hmm. uh, in 89 and looking at the role of you know for example how organic they were Yes, the organics and the, the, the role of like the, the particular leaderships, uh, you know, whether it be the Husseini leadership or the Arafat leadership, yeah. uh, things like that. 
that often this was very organic. It came from the base. It came from yeah. ordinary people, you know, wanting to be free of the oppression and repression that they were yeah. facing. Um, and so there was, you know, it was, there were everything from uh, at the beginning of the 36 revolt, you know, there were mass transport strikes, uh, you know, the shops all shuttered down in, 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 um, in, in refusing to sell produce and goods and things like that. Uh, they were, you know, the schools shut down, the the um, women played a very important role in, you know, making to collect funds uh, for the community and distributing it and making sure that, you know, people could feed their children and feed their families. It was a very impressive period. And when you had all of these committees and like originally the, the first strike committee that was set up um, really was, was in Nablus. And then basically Nablus put out a call to say, you know, we need to start organising. Uh, and within two or three days, there were hundreds of committees uh, across Palestine uh, that were joining, you know, joining this struggle. Uh, what makes so it even more impressive was, was the lack of media, social, social media, lack of technology. The fact that they could get these numbers mm. without having the technology that we have today. Exactly. That's exactly right. And it's what's interesting is like, you know, and this is a period too where where a lot of peasants in particular couldn't read or write. Illiterate, yeah. Yeah, they were illiterate. And so there was, you know, there's these wonderful stories of how um, people would gather in town squares so that, that they could have the news from the newspapers, the Arab and Palestinian newspapers about what was happening, read out to them so they could keep up with that. And so you have this wonderful sense of community and that that's there. Uh, and then, of course, as I said, you have uh, this escalation after a while civil disobedience and non-violent direct action uh, ceases but because of the the intensive repression of of the british government uh, on on the palestinian struggle uh, you do see a move into guerrilla warfare but you know the mistake that people often make is to try and pit these things as if they're opposites to each other and they're not opposites to each other they were part and parcel of a joint struggle and a guerrilla in the sense of guerrilla warfare guerrilla warfare will not work unless it has the support of the the masses the street it, yeah. it just doesn't work and and this is what was interesting so you had this period in 36 up until you know october november when a ceasefire finally starts in the hope that the the Hosseini leadership actually negotiate this ceasefire and then there's a royal, yet another royal commission by the British into why this has happened and every royal commission that the British have into any of the disturbances in Palestine say the same thing that it is because of Zionist settler colonialism every single one says it yeah. and it doesn't change <laughs> at all um, and so but then in 37 mid 37 you have the resumption of the revolt and at, at this time in the second half of the revolt it becomes a much more violent revolt because in the sense of it's it's predominantly guerrilla warfare over the over civil disobedience and that's primarily because Britain is able to successfully suppress the civil side of it. They successfully suppress the organising committees, any uh, civil disobedience that has happened. And at this stage, Britain formed, uh, well, they already had it, but they actively form military alliance with the Zionists. So thousands of Zionist settlers are recruited into working with the British to suppress, suppress the Palestinian uprising. This is actually of a great benefit to the, the Zionists because uh, even Ben, ben 
Gorian talks about this. He talks about how that for them it was a boon because one, it's semi-legalized. You know, there were already Zionist underground militias that were operating illegally, like the Haganah and Irgun and things like that. Uh, and he says, well, you know, this actually gave us a form of uh, acceptance above ground. It also allowed Zionist troops to be openly trained with the British. And it also, he talks about uh, when you, they were also able to, they would often not hand back all the guns, they would keep a lot of the ammunition, things like that. So they built up their military reserves by this. But, I mean, they're also manufacturing their own um, weaponry and they're also smuggling in weaponry mm -hmm. so you can see there's this uh, disparity there compared to the palestinians because the palestinians were pretty much really just armed with leftover <laughs> world war one stuff yeah yeah very old weaponry i mean they had i, I always have trouble pronouncing those Fawiz quiz who was a syrian fought against the french mandate and that who came at one part helped establish a more central command in the in the 36 period but yeah. uh, even that was limited in what they can do yeah. and so and what's interesting by the end of the 36 39 revolt is you have a co-option of of this, of palestinians as well in the year or so of the year to two of the revolt where there's an establishment of what is known as the peace bands so stop uh, there, Kim, so we can have something else for another show. Okay, sure. Sorry. We've actually run out. <laughs> that good. No, tell me to look, stop when I'm going too far. <laughs> it's fantastic. Thank you so much, Kim. The best thing about this show is we're going to have a Kim part two coming soon, so stay tuned. <laughs> okay. I'm sure you'll all agree it was great to have Kim joining us and sharing her learnings. June is Radiothon month. Make sure you support 3CR and Independent Radio. Share the podcast, tell your friends, and don't forget, free Palestine. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions. And we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay.